0: Thursday, February 16th, 2012. You know, we normally don't steer into politics here. In fact, I try to avoid like the plague. Uh, But Matt Harrison, the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, was before Congress today. Oh man, did he give a barn burner of a speech. I'm going to have to pass that along. Sorry, you know, I... Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is, well, sadly, no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we do the comparative work to see if what people are saying in God's name really squares and matches up with Scripture, or if well, if it doesn't. And uh, when it doesn't, well, we've got to warn you, you know, and let you know that what you're hearing is false doctrine and false teaching. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way, and that fun could cause, well, bad things to happen, like drops in productivity. Or if you're sleeping in military barracks, could cause you to laugh out loud and wake your buddies up, in which case they could pummel you and hurt your uh, person. Uh, just if, if that happens to if you're in the military listening to Fighting for the Faith and you're sleeping in the barracks, um, it's best if you, you know, try to control yourself um, – um, and if they do end up beating you up for waking them up after laughing, just talk to your superiors and let them know that you've been hazed. And Because I know the military has like an anti-hazing policy. And so yeah, that that's <laughs> – yeah, I just mentioned that because somebody in the military <laughs> posted on my Facebook wall that uh, I didn't properly warn them about the Patricia King segment and linking Patricia King's claims <laughs> about the Holy Spirit impregnating women with dreams and visions and Antoine Dodson. So uh... – <laughs> yeah, I apologize for that segment. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I should make a regular point of apologizing for the different segments we do here at Fighting for the Faith. In fact, um, we got a new Max Holiday's uh, Birdcage Theater that we're going to be putting into the um, into the mix. Yeah, I do signal ops here at the Secret Pirate Cave in the middle of se- <laughs> Central India. Indiana, because you know there's lots of pirates in in central Indiana, in the Midwest. The Midwest is just teeming with pirates. <laughs> so here at the uh, the Pirate Cave, you know we we actually intercepted a communiqué uh, that uh, that uh, about some new. A Bible study that that, that may be linked uh, to Stephen Furtick and Elevation Church, uh, entitled Audacious Bible Time. And in fact, you know, tell you what, let me just get this out of the way because I was really excited and giddy about this. Here is our uh, Mac, first Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater with a the new intro, uh, and this uh, segment is entitled Audacious Bible Time. Here we go. presents
1: Church Day Select.
0: you for tuning in to another episode of audacious bible time i'm your host stanley andy today we're going to be reading from matthew chapter 3 verse 7 from the furtick audaciously revised translation of the bible here's what it says but when he saw many of the pharisees and sadducees coming to his baptism he said to them you brood of bloggers who warned you to flee from your mother's basement Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Uh, Yeah, well, let's just dive right into the program after that. Now, that means we're doing some email. I got an email from uh, Pastor Craig in uh, Split Rock, Wisconsin. Okay, Pastor Craig from uh, Split Rock, Wisconsin writes a uh, thought and the subject is thoughts on the elephant room 2 and liberalism now this is an interesting connection and uh, worth passing along pastor craig writes he says chris i was listening to the program on january 31st and february 2nd something struck me in the discussion around relationships versus doctrine i recently led the congregations that i serve out of the elca we heard the exact same arguments on why we should stay as what the elephant room 2 talked about that love should supersede doctrinal objections interesting point craig continues to says so in this way churches that agree with the elephant room 2 are not conservative and they're not evangelical churches at all. They are speaking the same language and making the same excuses and condemning in the exact same manner as what liberal mainline denominations are doing today. That you know, uh, Pastor Craig, um, this is a brilliant point, and I'm glad that you are sharing this email. He continues, says, "I he says I personally was brought up on charges by my peers because I was speaking out against the ELCA. I was accused of spreading lies because I had the audacity. (laughs) Sorry, you know we got to use that term from time to time. He says I was accused of spreading lies because I had the audacity to tell people what the ELCA was doing and to critique it according to Scripture." I was accused of not being loving because I placed the word of God over that of the words of man. What I learned from it and what struck me about the Elephant Room 2 talk is that one is free, in quotes, and you know, you're free to uphold whatever you want to believe unless it disagrees with what those in charge believe. Then you are required to shut up and sit down. Pastor Craig from Split Rock, Wisconsin. Great points. And uh, I, I'm glad you drew those connections. You're right. Those are the exact same arguments that are being used, uh, you know, by mainline liberal denominations that, uh, well, um, James McDonald is doing. Now, James McDonald, he's kind of ha- he has a very interesting approach uh, to dealing with critics lately, especially on Twitter and uh, what he's uh He's been doing now for a while is anybody who says uh, a nary word uh, against him or critiques him or ev- says anything that shows any kind of disagreement with him publicly, um, he blocks them on Twitter. Now, th- th- there's there's a, uh, a like um, me- analogy, if you would, uh, to this particular technique. The technique is this. Um, if you take your fingers, stick them in your ears – so that you can't hear and then go la
1: la 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 I can't hear you la 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 la
0: that's the James McDonald approach to dealing with cri- <laughs> critics, so anyway, yeah okay, all right, so yeah, um yeah we, you you're, you love people more you love doctrine more than you love people if you critique them, so yeah, there you go, okay, uh, also talking about the uh, elephant room here, I hear I should probably play this here real quick here. <laughs> From the Cripplegate blog at thecripplegate.com, the headline is "Chandler is baffled and appalled." I love the photograph that they used for this particular blog post. By the way, uh, now I now I understand that uh, I'm at this point going to be reading from a blog, and so the assumed thing here is is that whoever wrote this, uh, his name is Jesse Johnson. Okay. Now, because he wrote this on a blog, that automatically means he's wrong. That automatically means that, well, that uh, well, everything he says, just none of it can be possibly true, because he apparently is a middle-aged man who still lives in his mother's basement, um, eats cheetos and types from a bean bag. Um, and in fact, you know, um, I don't think I've announced this on the program, but if you go to fightingforthefaith.com, if you go to fightingforthefaith.com, you know we've decided that uh, rather than fight this caricature of of bloggers as as basement living opinion givers, we've decided what we're going to do. Rather than fight it, let's embrace it. In fact, what I've done over at fightingforthefaith.com, if you uh, were to you know steer into the website itself, you know fightingforthefaith.com. Over on the right-hand side, the right-hand column, if you will, it's you'll notice that it's formatted using a three-column format with the center column being the widest column. Uh, that's where the content is. But on the right-hand side column, I have set up what we are referring to as our supply depot for maternal basement living opinion givers. it's yeah. So listen, rather than fight it, we're just going to embrace it. And uh, for those of you out there who are bloggers, uh, you, you are a maternal basement living opinion giver, we have set up a supply depot for you where you can literally go online and stock up on all the things that you need to be an effective maternal basement living opinion giver. Um, and we in fact we you can uh, click on a link there that'll take you to Amazon.com, and you can buy Cheetos by you know you know, you know like large supply style, you know big box of uh, Cheetos. You can buy a bean bag. You can buy the the best of Star Trek uh, a DVD with William Shatner. I mean the whole nine yards. Um, we we've got a link there that you can get your very own Apple uh, MacBook Pro laptop. Uh, you can buy a case of Mountain Dew, and you know listen, you know this shows. My personal expertise in, in being a maternal basement living opinion giver, the last thing on the list there is a Rizzy rug. Now, if you don't know what a Rizzy rug is, well, <laughs> you're just missing out. Uh, no, no basement uh, in your mom's house is Properly styled, if you would, unless it has a rizzy rug so uh so that again you know we we 're not going to fight it anymore we 're just going to embrace it we 're going to embrace it and uh for those of you who would like to uh stock up on supplies for your uh for yourself if you 're a maternal basement living opinion giver we've we've got the supply depot for you at the fighting for the faith website and uh, and you know just so you know that if you were to go to fightingforthefaith.com and click on the Cheetos bag there and go to Amazon and uh, and you know and purchase it a small percentage of uh, the supplies that you buy at the maternal basement living opinion givers uh, supply depot goes to support fighting for the faith. So I just wanted to share that with you. But <laughs> oh man. Anyway, uh the Cripplegate Jesse Johnson um which is a blog the headline is again, Chandler is baffled and appalled. This is an interesting post and I think it's worth passing along, especially in the light of the email that I just read from Pastor Craig. Jesse writes, he says, I have stayed really far away from the elephant room boondoggle. Yeah, boondoggle is another one of those words that's kinda like kerfuffle. I like it a lot. Anyway, so he's staying away from the elephant room boondoggle because there is such a thing as beating a dead elephant. <laughs> But, 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 last week this tweet from Matt Chandler made the rounds online. Matt Chandler wrote on Twitter, "I'm baffled and appalled by anyone who thinks that James Macdonald is a heretic. This is crazy talk." And he put the crazy talk hashtag on it. And he, so he says, "I feel compelled to respond. Two things strike me about this tweet. Number one, it is sad when saying a person is not a heretic counts as defending that person." OK, number two, I honestly don't know anyone who says James McDonald is an actual heretic. And yeah, personally, I haven't run into any of those either. Um, um, I would say he's, you know, a, a, an ungracious host. <laughs> <clears throat> That's just my personal experience anyway. But, you know, you got to You got to give James McDonald props at least when he hires security guys. You know, listen, these are guys who fit the mold. OK, the. I was not <laughs> asked to leave the Harvest Bible Chapel um property by a man who looked like a mall cop. No, no, no. I was <laughs> confronted by a security guy who looked like he was uh, related to Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know? So, I mean, if you're going to do that, if you're going to hire security guys, you know, Do it right. Do it James McDonald style. You know, anyway, I'm just saying. Anyway, so I'm digressing. Number two, I honestly don't know anyone who says that James McDonald is an actual heretic, like the kind of heretic that denies the Trinity or who preaches a different gospel. You may quibble with his soteriology. Would you call that three-point Calvinism, his eschatology, pre-wrath, or his ecclesiology, multi-site? But I haven't come across anyone who would say he is an actual heretic. Maybe there are people at the village that say this, but I have yet to meet or read anyone that makes that claim. Chandler's quote is bothersome because it presents a novel defense against the criticism macdonald is rightly under obviously many people warned macdonald against giving jakes a larger audience and when i say people warned macdonald i'm not talking about bloggers he's a blogger i'm talking about pastors of some renown yet for his own reasons macdonald did not heed those warnings but that doesn't make him a heretic Did he act in a way that was wise? Well, if a shark has eaten all the fish in one tank, it's unwise to drop him into another tank, unless you want to see fish gobbled. But let's assume McDonald actually had good intentions. With the exception of Furtick, not many people have been willing to argue that Jakes is not a shark. So the most charitable thing to do is to grant that McDonald wanted to do good or wanted good to come from this and went about it in a really unwise way. That's right. (laughs) He took T.D. Jakes, the shark, and put him into the big tank of evangelicalism so that he can gobble up more people, at least monetarily. Anyway... But then Jesse asks. He says, "But or says that, but does that doesn't make him a heretic? Did his actions actually harm the church? Well, a word faith prosperity gospel modalist was just catapulted in front of a whole world of people who otherwise would not have been exposed to him. For a few months, the Gospel Coalition churches got to endure what is li- uh, what is a lifetime for black churches, namely the c- constant pull." From the power of Jakes's personality toward his doctrine. Undiscerning college students who admire McDonald and Driscoll just Googled modalism, then saw their heroes pronounce it as a sort of it, it, it as sort of kosher. Fans of Furtick, who have long thought his fascination with Jakes was strange, suddenly see it as vindicated. I would call that harmful. But does that make James McDonald a heretic? When all of this, the dust is settled from this affair, the net result will be that Jake's has increased his influence. Mark Driscoll and McDonald have built empires of influence and they just use their influence to expose people to Jake's. McDonald has since stressed that the entire room Uh, Was a splendid time for brothers to come together and to talk about their differences. The tacit endorsement of Jake's represents an almost surreal attempt by McDonald to cling to the success of this event. While it may be surreal, it certainly does not make him a heretic. There may be some people who think this whole elephant room two thing should be left alone and that bloggers and writers and pastors who continue to criticize it or comment on it are wasting their time. Strangely enough, McDonald seems to think this, but there really is not a more important contem- contemporary issue for us to talk about. Board members of the Gospel Coalition, ostensibly by their own title, a group that defines the essentials of the gospel for evangelicals, are affiliating themselves with T.D. Jakes. So an obvious question arises. Can someone preach the prosperity gospel while simultaneously holding to a leaky form of modalism, mind you, and still be considered a true Christian? That is a legitimate question, and one which even Keller and Carson, apparently the leaders of the coalition, urges to answer carefully. On the one hand, it's disheartening that leaders in the Gospel Coalition are openly embracing Jakes as a brother, but on the other, it is encouraging that this has not gone unnoticed. People should respond, and they should be fairly outraged. They should feel betrayed by Driscoll, McDonald, and Loritz. They should ask hard questions about how the leadership of the Gospel Coalition got mainstream evangelicalism to this point. And if I may borrow a phrase from Chandler, Christians should be shocked and appalled that decades into its existence, the word-faith movement's very primary leader is being embraced as a brother by evangelical leaders. The question of the month is how can Driscoll and McDonald be seen as evangelical leaders while promoting and vindicating T.D. Jakes? To answer that question by simply saying that McDonald is not a heretic, well, that's a neat trick, but it's also not helpful. The issue is the leadership of McDonald Driscoll at all. Can we grant that you can abuse your leadership, harm the church, and expose people to a renowned false teacher and not be a heretic? The issue isn't McDonald's orthodoxy. It is his leadership, and I'm baffled and appalled by anyone who can't see the difference. That's crazy talk. Wow. Um great article by uh, Jesse Johnson there at the Cripplegate, so worth passing along here. Okay, now I'm going to do something I normally don't do, and that is, I, if you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for a long time, I don't normally cover po- the politics. I, it's just, and it's not what we're about. Uh, it's not that politics are not important, it's just that I leave politics to the people who do politics for a living. I'm no good at it, so uh, I try to stay away from it as much as possible um but the thing is is that uh, today uh well um, matt harrison the president of the lutheran church missouri synod well he appeared before um the uh house oversight and government reform committee on capitol hill talking about what is a big story right now a big story is uh, the obama administration's requirement for religious organizations to provide health care that includes, uh, well, um, birth control that is uh, also abortion, uh, you know, over-the-counter post-conception abortive type of uh, drugs. And so uh, Matt Harrison uh, just (laughs) did a fantastic job. And so I would like to pass that along to you because I think what he said was was just brilliant and he said it in a tone that was somewhat agitated. I I thought he hit it out of the park so uh, here's uh, today's uh, um, uh, audio from Matthew Harrison's uh, uh, meeting before the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. Here we go.
2: I will note for the record that uh, witnesses uh, swore or affirmed
3: depending upon their faith. And with that, we go to Reverend Harrison. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's a pleasure to be here. The Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod is a body of some 6,200 congregations and 2.3 million members across the U.S. We don't distribute voters' lists. We don't have a Washington offices, office. We are studiously nonpartisan, so much so that we're often criticized for being quietistic. I'd rather not be here, frankly. Our task is to proclaim in the words of the blessed Apostle St. John, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all our sin, and we care for the needy. We have not the slightest intent to Christianize the government. Martin Luther famously quipped one time, I'd rather have a smart Turk than a stupid Christian governing me. We confess that there are two realms, the church and the state. They shouldn't be mixed. The church is governed by the word of God, the state, by natural law and reason, the Constitution. We have 1,000 grade schools and high schools, 1,300 early childhood centers, 10 colleges and universities. We are a machine which produces good citizens for this country At a tremendous personal cost. We have the nation's only historic black Lutheran college in Concordia, Selma. Many of our people were alive today and walked with Dr. King 50 years ago on the march from Selma to Montgomery. We put up the first million dollars and have continued to provide finance for the Nehemiah Project in New York as it has continued over the years to provide home ownership for thousands of families, many of them headed by single women. Our agency in New Orleans can restore, rebuilt over 4,000 homes after Katrina through the blood, sweat and tears of our volunteers. Our Lutheran Malaria Initiative, barely begun, has touched the lives of 1.6 million people in East Africa, especially those affected by disease, women and children. And this is just the tip, the very tip, of the charitable iceberg. I'm here to express our deepest distress over the HHS provisions. We are religiously opposed to supporting abortion-causing drugs. That is in part why we maintain our own health plan. While we are grandfathered under the very narrow provisions of the HHS policy, we are deeply concerned that our consciences may soon be martyred by a few strokes on the keyboard as this administration moves us all into a single-payer program, a system. Our direct experience in the Hosanna-Tabor case with one of our congregations gives us no comfort that this administration will be concerned to guard our free exercise rights. We self-insure 50,000 people. We do it well. Our workers make an average of $43,000 a year. 17,000 teachers make much less on average. Our health plan uh, was preparing to take significant cost-saving measures to be passed on to our workers, just as this health care legislation was passed. We elected not to make those changes, incurred great cost, Lest we fall out of the narrow provisions of the requirement uh, required for the grandfather clause. While we are opposed in principle not to all forms of birth control, but only abortion-causing drugs, we stand with our friends in the Catholic Church and all Christian or non-Christian under the free exercise and conscience provisions of the U.S. Constitution. Religious people determine what violates their consciences, not the federal government. The conscience is a sacred thing. Our church exists because overzealous governments in northern Europe made decisions which trampled the religious convictions of our forebears. I have ancestors who served in the Revolutionary War. I have ancestors who were on the Lewis and Clark Expedition. I have ancestors who served in the War of 1812, who fought for the North in the Civil War. My 88-year-old father-in-law has recounted to be in tears many times the horrors of the Battle of the Bulge. In fact, Bud Day, the most highly decorated veteran alive, is a member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We fought for a free conscience in this country, and we won't give it up without a fight. To paraphrase, to paraphrase Martin Luther, the heart and conscience has room only for God, not for God and the federal government. The bed is too narrow, the blanket is too short. We must obey God rather than men, and we will. Please get the federal government, Mr. Chairman, out of our consciences. Thank you. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, now there's (laughs) something you don't see or hear every day. Well said. All I can say is wow, amen, and amen. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
1: presenting for your listening pleasure Majestic Mystery by Brian McLaren read by Reginald Bumper Scatter
0: Oh Majestic Mystery Oh Mysterious Majesty My small hand can never grasp you
1: I can't can only hold t- 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 it open.
0: I don't like this oh, at all. Majestic <laughs> mystery. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to be sick. Oh, mysterious. He's saying words, but I'm not even sure it's
1: English.
2: Small mind.
1: <laughs> ah! My appendix just turned inside out. Can you hold
0: it open? Someone help that poor man and call the paramedics. What's all this then? That poor man' appendix is just turned inside out. Well, that doesn't sound good. It's not every day that people' appendixes do that. What was he doing? Uh, listening to the emergent poet on stage. You didn't tell me there was emergent poetry being read? Right.
1: Everybody evacuate the building immediately.
3: Oh, majestic
0: mystery. Here come the Navy Seals. What seems to be the trouble? Somebody in that building is reading emergent poetry. Have you set up a soundproof perimeter? No, I haven't had time. Oh, we can't help you then. What is can't help us too dangerous T- Too dangerous don't get cheeky with me you've seen but a small taste of emergent poetry's destructive power it only gets worse with each passing stanza game over dude game over quick get that man into quarantine his soul's been sucked out from his nostrils isn't there anything you can do to help that poor man afraid not the only answer we have now is to nuke the site from orbit Search the area and make sure no one's hiding in the refrigerator. We can't have any survivors. It's been nice serving with you, Chief. Likewise. Can't believe the world's come to this. back. Warning, today is a day for truth. The dividing line is getting wider. Which side are you on? Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, FightingForTheFaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons right there in the middle column. Uh, One says donate, the other says join our crew. The join our crew button, it it signs you up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks... Uh, When we publish books and make other resources available, those uh, go to our uh, crew members at no additional cost. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable, to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. It's been a while since we've done an update like this. She loves a monkey's uncle, yeah, yeah. She
4: loves the monkey's uncle, oh, oh. She loves the monkey's uncle.
3: And the monkey's uncle, they for me. Well, I don't care what the whole world thinks. She
0: loves the monkey's uncle.
3: Call us a couple of missing links.
0: She loves the monkey's uncle. Uncles ate for me. A for me. uh She loves a monkey's uncle. Yeah, yeah. She loves a monkey's uncle. Whoa, whoa. She loves a monkey's uncle. And
4: the monkeys
0: uncles a for me. Yeah, Alright, that's Annette Finichello. <laughs> well, at the Beach Boys. Yeah, you know, that's an old Disney uh, video that <laughs> anyway. Uh that means we're doing a Biologos evolution update. Now, here's the deal. Okay. Um, God's word makes it clear that by faith we understand that God created the universe, the world, out of literally spoken into existence, not from what was made, but you know, literally ex nihilo. I mean, the, consult uh, Hebrews if you're not sure what I'm talking about here. Uh, so the idea of evolution, uh, evolution is actually a contrary claim to origins. It's a con- it's a competing philosophical system. Worldview, and in some cases, I think you can know, argue it's a, it's a form of a religion. Okay, and there's a group out there, the Biologos Forum, that is trying to make much of, uh, well, um, letting everybody know that you can be a good Christian and deny what the Bible teaches regarding. Uh, um, creation. Um, And so if you were to go to, you know, biologos.org, and you were to, you know, just kind of, you know, get in there, uh, you would find all kinds of very interesting resources from this group that's doing everything that it can to, well, make it so that Christians don't look so backwards, so anti-scientific, like, you know, like a bunch of country bumpkins, you know, people who believe that who deny that evolution occurred and stuff like that? And so the funny thing about it is, is that um, on, you know, when you pull into the website, they've got all kinds of interesting people who they put up as you know prominent Christian leaders who are who are supporting the work of Biologos. Uh, you know, and 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 so one of the people who supports the work of Biologos, who they feature on their homepage, well, is none other than Tim Keller. Yeah. Tim Keller of um, of the Gospel Coalition, um, he's one of the guys who has allowed uh, his endorsement of BioLogos to be made publicly on their website, which I find kind of interesting because in doing so, Tim Keller is working with other people who are doing everything they can to create a Christianity that is evolutionary friendly. And, you know, including, you know, guys like, well, here, listen.
2: When we meet people who disagree on some of these issues, whether it's issues of the relation of faith and science or other kinds of theological issues, it's very easy to get into an argument. Here's my view. Here's your view. And we start sort of going head to head.
0: Yeah. By the way, that's um, Brian McLaren, the arch emergent postmodern heretic who has flat out attacked uh the uh, biblical meta narrative and has called for a rethinking of the whole of all of christianity not not one of fall and redemption uh, but something completely different uh if if you don't know what i'm referring to go into the archives of fighting for the faith and you'll see what i'm saying so i just find it odd i just find it odd that by endorsing the biologos website and allowing himself to be prominently featured as a guy who's thinking that what biologos is up to is a good thing. Tim Keller has in a sense, um, let himself be, uh, become yoked with and partnered with, um, Brian McLaren, just kind of odd to me, but uh, let's continue as Brian McLaren is now going to make a postmodern philosophical claim ...regarding, you know, the the controversy and the debate that occurs regarding evolutionary folk and creationists.
2: And what almost always happens is, if this is my side, I pit my strengths against your weaknesses... ...and you pit your strengths against my weaknesses. And uh, when that happens, the argument just goes on and on. We never make any progress. We can start to make progress if I'll start talking about my weaknesses and your strengths. And when that happens the argument begins to turn into a conversation instead of just a fight. If we come to a place of difference, I want to show curiosity in why you hold the view you do. So I would say, well, tell me more about that and tell me why that's important to you. And I would show genuine interest and respect in the person. Even if I disagree with the ideas, I can show interest in the person who holds them and interest in why those beliefs are important. And here's an interesting turnaround when I think about that. So I think the six day creation people, I, I think they're wrong. I think they're misguided. I love them. I respect them. I, I, if someone believes that, I, I'll be glad to be their friend and we'll just agree to disagree. It's totally fine with me. But even though I think they're wrong on the details, I think they're right about something. And I think they're right to oppose the, the attitude of evolutionists who make it sound like all that the universe is, is matter, energy, plus time, and that explains everything. And I think that there's something inside the creation, uh, six-day creation people, that knows that that's not right, and so they're countering it. I think they're, some of their conclusions are wrong, some of their assumptions are wrong, but I think they're right to counter it.
0: I mean, isn't that just so... Post- let's have a conversation about this. You know, let's... You know, I I think you people who believe what the Bible says that you know God created the world and spoke it into existence in six days that you're, yeah you're you're a bunch of country bumpkins but I I appreciate the fact that you think that there's more to what's going on than just this idea of matter plus time equals life uh, yeah I, I can appreciate that yeah uh, boy yeah it, isn't it interesting though um. You know the Biologos forum, uh, it, you know, makes a point of really embracing guys like Brian McLaren. It's just weird to me. I mean, if you go to the Biologos forum, and you uh, type, you know, go to their search bar and type in Tim Keller, Tim Keller is prominently featured. I mean, he shows up on the on the front page. Uh, you know, it, he's prominently featured as a guy who's all for the work of Biologos, which means he's, in a sense. Ah, uh, through the Biologos forum, partnering with arch heretics like um, Brian McLaren. H- here's some more of McLaren. To me,
2: the invitation to love and understand, in and, a and sense, not be ruled by
0: reactions. That, to me, feels yeah. Truth doesn't really matter. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. We just need to love each other. Feels like it's part of maturity. the way Jesus
2: taught was peace through reconciliation.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, which Jesus?
2: Peace through bringing people together to see one another as equals and as...
0: uh, Uh, No, no, no. Reconciliation is not seeing each other as equals. It's... it's (laughs) Reconciliation is what was done by Christ's penal substitutionary death for us on the cross. We were reconciled to God by what Christ did on the cross. Notice he's... You know, these postmodern guys, I mean, they just play fast and loose with words. Was well, equally in need of God's
2: grace because we're all a mess. You know, we're all sinners. We're all, we all have our flaws. So none of us can claim superiority over the others morally. But also to see one another as equals because we're all made in God's image and God loves all of us. And and um, the best peace comes through love and, and respect and, and reconciliation.
0: Yeah, yeah, love, respect, reconciliation. Yeah, you six-day creation folks, you're all wrong, you're all wet, but I just love you. Hmm, yeah, no, this is really about truth. What is true? Can we trust God's word? Can we trust what God has revealed in his word, that he spoke the world into existence in six days? Or is death the mechanism of life? Okay, because keep in mind, the two the two ideas can't be reconciled. If evolution is true, then death is the mechanism by which God created the world and humans, not that he spoke them into existence and they, they were made, you know, that none of that at all. I mean, we're talking about two completely different systems. You know, in the, the biblical worldview, what God has revealed in his word, death is a punishment for sin. It is a consequence of a cursed creation as a, as a result of man's rebellion against God. In an evolutionary worldview, death becomes the mechanism by which the fittest survive. And, uh, and well, uh, genetic codes supposedly change so much so that uh, there's uh, mutations that result in uh, beneficial change and uh, one species changes into another. Yet, scientifically, that's never been shown to happen. And so I find it interesting Baker Publishing has a, kind of a sub-company that uh, they publish books for called uh, Brazos Press. And uh, they've just posted a series of uh, videos um, with Peter Enns uh, talking about his new book regarding the evolution of Adam. Okay, Peter Enns is a guy who the Biologos folks like a lot. But let's listen to um, Peter Enns describe what's in this book, and then what we'll do is we'll let Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith. Nobody can accuse Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith of not being a scientist. And we'll let Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith do our sermon review today and give us a scientific discussion between the difference between evolution and creation from the point of view of a scientist. But uh, here's Peter Enns talking about his book that's uh, being published by Baker Bookhouse, under a sub-publishing uh, company called Brazos Press. But here's Peter Enns.
4: Well, the main thesis of the book um, is uh, trying to understand how evolutionary theory can be in conversation with uh, biblical texts that talk about.
0: How evolutionary theory can be in conversation with biblical texts. Boy, that sounds very much like post-modernity.
4: The origin of humanity very differently than evolutionary theory. And uh, the audience that I'm really trying to reach in this particular book is uh, people who have already, uh, for whatever reason, come to the conclusion that evolution is uh, the proper understanding, scientific understanding, of uh, the beginnings of humanity, uh, but who also uh, are... Avid readers of the Bible and want to be conversant uh, with what the Bible says, and you know,
0: bottom line, want to. We want to be conversant with the Bible, but deny what the Bible says regarding human origins.
4: Take the Bible very seriously.
0: Hey, that... okay, hang on, I'm going to back this up because I want you to hear this. I'm going to challenge something he's saying here. Here we go. With
4: what the Bible says, and you know, bottom line, want to take the Bible very seriously.
0: They want to take the Bible seriously. Okay, now we hear this kind of talk from postmodern folk all the time. Oh, we take the Bible very seriously. Okay, um, yeah, I take Adolf Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, very seriously. But it doesn't mean that I believe anything that Hitler says in there. Okay, what does it mean to take something seriously? Okay, I, I I take the Communist Manifesto, I you know, I, I take it very seriously. I think the Communists meant what they said about taking over the world. I take it very seriously. Hmm, you know, the Bible doesn't call us to take it seriously. God calls us to repent of our false doctrine, our false notions, to repent and to believe what he's revealed in his word by faith. Now, that doesn't mean that faith is contrary to reason. In fact, what we're going to learn from Dr. A. Wilder-Smith in hour number two here, faith and reason are not two things that are at war with each other. And we're going to hear a scientific lecture regarding the problems of evolution and how you can look at the creation and know that there's a creator. This is going to be from a scientist speaking scientifically. So what's interesting about this here is that, you know, you know, I we've we I believe in evolution. These people say, and and I want to take the Bible seriously, except for those parts that say that we're created. I'm not going to take that seriously, but I want to take everything else seriously. But I, you know, I you know, it just doesn't work that way. Sorry, folks, I, there is no good scientific reasons, and I mean that no good scientific reason whatsoever to believe evolutionary theory. I mean. It, it Over and again, it falls flat scientifically when you start pushing it for real scientific evidence. It's, I mean, it's more of a mythology than a scientific theory, but we continue.
4: And that's sort of been a pressure point for Christians for about, I uh, mean, 150 years or so at this point, maybe longer. Um, and so I'm trying to help um, people like that, um, give them language and give them, I guess, categories to use. To, to think through this issue for matters of personal faith, and just simply understanding uh, how to think Christianly in, in the modern world that we live in. Um, I, the book is divided into two parts. The first part, I deal with Genesis, and the second half, I deal with the Apostle Paul, because Paul spends a little bit of time, more than any other biblical author in the New Testament, uh, talking about Adam. And uh there in in both of those sections the heart of what I'm trying to reach is what do we have the right to expect of biblical authors writing in antiquity um, who are writing about things like the origins of humanity and uh, I try to set uh, both Genesis and uh, the Apostle Paul in their own sort of context and and, what could we expect them and their audiences to, um, to understand about human origins. and In fact, was human origins even what they were that interested in to begin with? Um,
0: yeah, when it says that man was created in Genesis, even though that was said, you know, like really a long time ago, in antiquity even, um, you know what that means? It means that man was created. Our origin is God. God actually formed man and created him. That's our origins. So notice he's at this point, you know, let's let's put, you know, the uh, Old Testament authors and Paul into, into the, I mean, they're, come on. They they were from the ancient world, you know, the ancients, you know, they had a different way of looking at things. And, and you know, they didn't know any better because, you know, they're a bunch of, you know, they're pretty much unsophisticated, you know, nitwits. And you know, if if only they had the, the you know, the ability to you know l- grow up in today's world, they would have known better. You know, see, it's, it's not their it's not their fault that they were born in a time when, when people were pretty much rubes. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
4: Genesis has its own difficulties in terms of. Uh, what role does adam play in the book of genesis it's not as clear as uh, i think many people automatically
0: think that it is yeah it's not, see yeah it's not clear you know it seems pretty clear to me um and even the apostle paul seemed to find the genesis uh, origins especially regarding adam and the implications of the created adam and his sinful rebellion against God as to how that has to do with, well, the gospel itself. He seemed to think that that, that was pretty cut and dry, black and white, clear. But uh, notice Peter ends, comes along, oh, yeah, it's not as clear as you think. Here, let me blur it for you.
4: Um, but I think a far bigger problem for Christians is the Apostle Paul. Uh, because he refers to Adam in in two places in Romans. Notice that the
0: Apostle Paul is a problem now for Christians. Yeah, I, I want you to hear it again. The, I mean, this is very interesting talk.
4: But I think a far bigger problem for Christians is the Apostle Paul, uh, because he refers to Adam in in two places, in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he attributes to Adam... Uh, the cause of human misery and human
0: death. Yeah, he sure does. Cause Genesis does. Oh, by the way, you know, Jesus believed in creation too. Weird, isn't it? I can
4: put it that way. Um, And so it seems that for Paul, uh, the, um, the question of a first human is, is actually central to his, um,
0: his theology. Notice Paul's a problem. (laughs) He's a problem. And, yeah, he seems to think that Adam was a real person, and he attributes all the problems of humanity to that first person, and that's the center of his theology. Words matter, folks. When you start talking about Paul this way, as somebody who's a problem, where Adam and the fall of man is at the center of his theology— that Those are words and rhetoric that is being used to separate the Apostle Paul from Christianity itself. Strange tactic here. But you know what? This isn't anything new. This is exactly the same tactic used by liberals for the last hundred or so years. Always and again, they attack that poor Apostle Paul. You know, he's a rube. He's, he's the one who's straight-jacketed us so that we, you know, that we have to believe in a literal Adam. And if it wasn't for him, I mean, we'd just get rid of him, you know. Uh, I have a friend of mine who is a pretty well-known pastrix in the emergent movement. And I asked her straight up. I said, you know, uh, one time I said, listen, you know, how is it that you can justify being a pastor when God's word clearly says that women... Are not to hold the you know the the pastoral office. Her answer, straight up. Are you ready? Oh, that's what Paul wrote. I don't think that's biblical. I don't believe that Paul's letters belong in the Bible. At least she was honest. Okay, it's a form of Marcionite uh, of the Marcionite heresy. You know, you just basically take an exacto knife and you get rid of uh, the parts you don't like. But here, Peter ends is employing the same exact tired old liberal Marcionite tactic. We're going to, well, paint the Apostle Paul as a problem. Yeah, that Apostle Paul, he's, he's, the, he's the culprit. And, of course, he grew up in antiquity, and he's a rube. And, and so we've we got to find a way to muddy the waters, maybe discredit Paul. OK, which, by the way, our next ebook is going to be coming out shortly. And I, what I mean by that, hopefully sometime in early March uh, and those who are people who are members of our crew uh, will will be uh will get a copy of it at no additional cost. But the name of the book is uh, The Origin of Paul's Religion, The Origin of Paul's Religion by the great defender of the Christian faith against liberalism, J. Gresham Machen. So uh, stay tuned. We're going to be we're going to be making that available as an ebook. uh um, for kindle and for other ebook reading devices uh it, you know in, in the book in the month of march so i just want to let you know that but here so here's the the, the tactic attack paul you know he's the problem you know, listen again
4: you know put it that way um and so it seems that for paul uh the, um, the question of a first human is, is actually central to his uh, his theology. Uh, one of the points that I make in, in, in uh, my book is that I don't think that Adam is central to Paul's theology. I think Christ is central to Paul's theology. And Paul brings Adam into the discussion to sort of explain um, who Jesus is and what he did and why it's earth-shattering and unprecedented.
0: Yeah, so we'll just... We'll just reinvent Paul, if you would. Here's more of this.
4: I think one of the biggest obstacles for uh, Christians, at least, to think through this issue of evolution and Adam is um, having false expectations of what the Bible is actually prepared to deliver. And we see that.
0: Both- yeah, so you got false expectations. And isn't it interesting that Peter ends is spending all of this time basically attacking, reworking, reinterpreting. Uh, blurring clear things in the Bible uh, because um, you know he's already bought into evolution. Why doesn't he do this with Darwin? You know, why doesn't he employ the same tactic against Darwinian evolution? So I mean, he's basically I've I've bought into evolution, so let's attack the Bible and rework it so I can hang on to my Christianity.
4: Both with Genesis and with Paul. Um, so with Genesis, for example, uh, if we remember that. Uh, both Genesis chapter 1, which tells the story of creation in general, and Genesis chapters 2 and 3, that tells the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, both of those stories were written uh, by ancient authors at an ancient time.
0: Yeah, think of uh, ancient authors. You know, they're rubes. You know, we, we know better than they.
4: Or they had ancient ways of looking
0: at the cosmos. Of look- Notice that this is an attack against the very inspiration of the biblical text. Jesus makes it clear that the Torah and the prophets are the inspired word of God. But notice what he's doing here. Well, we've got to, we've got to undermine the authority of those texts. Yeah, you know, they tell a six-day creation, but you know what? They were written by ancient people. Do mm-hmm. you know that God is referred to as the Ancient of Days? So here's the deal. Is the problem with the Genesis text is that it was written by ancient people? Because by basically phrasing it that way, you're denying and tacitly attacking the uh, the 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 God component of the of those texts. All scripture is God breathed. Notice the attack. Watch again.
4: Genesis, for example, uh, if we remember that uh, both Genesis chapter one, which tells the story of creation in general, and Genesis chapters two and three, that tells the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, both of those stories were written uh, by ancient authors at an ancient time yeah. where they had ancient ways of looking at the cosmos of looking at humanity of looking at well pretty much everything. Um, we understand from uh, the uh, you know the, the discovery of a lot of ancient origins texts from Mesopotamian from-
0: or were those ancient origins texts from Mesopotamia? inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, the way Genesis was
4: from Egypt and
0: from uh, were those texts from Egypt inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, the same way that Genesis was
4: uh, the land of Canaan, for example, Um, how much the biblical author of Genesis one and Genesis two and three, how much of those biblical authors shared with the ancient world. And uh, I think once we just allow that to sink in, we'll begin to see very quickly that Questions of um, of origins from a modern point of view were simply not on the radar screen of ancient authors.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I, if only they had the questions from modernity, you know, on their radars, they wouldn't. You know, the biblical authors wouldn't have talked about creation in such a way as that it made it sound like you know, well, God was the one who did it.
4: Um, and if we understand Genesis not to be answering the question, you know. What was the first person in a let's say, biological modern scientific sense? Some of the tensions between Genesis and evolution may begin to subside a bit. At least I, I think that they should.
0: Because- yeah, so we can get rid of those nasty tensions. You know, we're not we're <laughs> we're just going to get rid of those nasty tensions by you know under you know basically denying the inspiration of the uh, the Genesis text. A tribute to the author uh, of Genesis, and that would be Moses. The, a tribute to the author of Moses, well, an ancient way of looking at things. He was obviously influenced by, you know, Babylonian uh, origins texts, Egyptian or, uh, origins texts, and stuff like that. Um, by the way, I happen to know something about uh, how the Egyptians viewed the origins of the universe and humanity. And um, uh, their view has something to do with one of the gods pleasing himself sexually, and um, and the result of that is what created the universe. I don't see that in the Bible, though. Um, weird. Um, you know, of course, you know, I could just discredit him and say, oh, yeah, that was ancient. Yeah, if it's old, it's not true. If it's new and modern, it must be true. Notice that's the presupposition here, and he's using these ideas to blur attack and deny that God is the one who inspired the biblical text to be written. This isn't an inspired text anymore. It's really just a human product, and you can't blame these guys. I mean, they were, you know, sorry, they were influenced by ancient ideas. And we know better now because, you know, we're modern and postmodern. So, hmm, yeah, I'm sorry, this is not compatible with biblical Christianity. This isn't Christianity. This is doubt. This isn't faith. This is uh, basically coming to the biblical text and saying, I'm going to believe what I want to believe. I'm I'm going to smorgasbord pick, and I'm going to just say, I'm going to to believe in evolution, deny this part of the Bible, but affirm this one, this part of it. Because I take it seriously, but I don't want to believe what it actually says. Yeah, this is not the behavior of Christians at all. This is not how Christians operate at all. Either Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said that God created, or he was lying and I think that since Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and rose from the dead, that makes him more qualified to speak about the creation than Peter N's, Tim Keller, or Brian McLaren or any of the folks over there at Biologos. Yeah, no, this is this is some serious problems. And you know what's at stake? The gospel itself. If Adam really wasn't the first human created by God and Eve created from the rib of Adam and Adam and Eve really didn't rebel against God and cause all this problems in the world, all the suffering, the sin, the death, the curse and all this kind of stuff, then the gospel doesn't make any sense. Literally, you lose you lose creation and Adam and Eve, you lose the gospel. And that, there's just no two ways about it. And that has played out historically in liberal churches who've, who've, Made it their pet hobby to try to reconcile evolution with uh, Christianity. The two can't be mixed. They 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 are two competing world claims. And notice here, at this point, Peter ends is is basically playing the role that all the liberals have played in the past. You buy into evolutionary theory, you then go and attack, rework, re come up with a way of blurring what the Bible says so that when you get to those passages that contradict evolution, you have a new way to just mystically, uh, almost in a Gnostic kind of way, reinterpret it in such a way that you can still hang on to your misbeliefs. Not good at all all. All right, we're up on our second break, and when we come back, we're going to be listening to a fantastic scientific lecture by the late Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith regarding the debate between evolution and uh, creationism. You're not going to want to miss it. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talking talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, Mine in there, fire Christian. We'll be right back.
4: Relevance Shmelevance, we preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. It's not a sermon, but it's a good lecture. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. World are equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon isn't a sermon. It's actually a college lecture dele- delivered by the late Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith. The name of the lecture is The Great Debate, Evolution or Creation. I would like to read to you Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith's credentials. This man was a scientist. Okay. A.E. Wilder-Smith studied... Natural Sciences at Oxford, England. He received his first doctorate in physical organic chemistry at Reading University in England in 1941. During World War II, he joined the research department of ICI in England. After the war, he became Countess of Lisburn Memorial Fellow at the University of London. Subsequently, Dr. Wilder Smith was appointed director of research for a Swiss pharmaceutical company. Later, he was elected to teach chemotherapy and pharmacology at the medical school of the University of Geneva, for which he received his habitation, the senior examination required for professional appointments to European continental universities. At Geneva, he earned his second doctorate, followed by a third doctorate from ETH, a senior university in Switzerland in Zurich. In 1957 and 58, uh, Dr. Wilder Smith was visiting assistant professor at the Medical Center of the University of Illinois. In 1959 to 1961, he was the visiting full professor of pharmacology at the University of Bergen Medical School in Norway. After a further two years at the University of Geneva, he was appointed full professor of pharmacology at the University of Illinois Medical Center. Here, he received, in three succeeding years, three Golden Apple Awards for the Best Course of Lectures, together with four Senior Lecturer Awards for Best Series of Year Lectures. Dr. Wilder Smith's last Golden Apple Award was inscribed with these words, He made us not only better scientists, but also better men. Yeah. I I think that's important to read because I want to make something very clear. What you're going to hear here is a scientist discussing the problems of evolution. If you're going to attack anything, don't attack the Bible and call yourself a Christian. If you're going to attack anything, attack the real enemy, evolutionary theory. Here's Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith, The Great Debate, Evolution or Creation?
1: Now, ladies and gentlemen, tonight I have to talk to you about the great debate the great debate, God, or chance, that is, evolution or creation. And I'm going to do um, the same passage of Scripture, i just read it out to you, so that it really does remain with you uh, for some time to come to introduce this subject. And it's the passage in Romans, chapter 1, I'm going to read it out too carefully. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain, and he means it's plain to the godless. Uh, That goes out of verse, verse 18, the wickedness of men and the ungodliness of men. What can be known about God is plain to them, to the wicked and the ungodly, because God has shown it to them. It isn't that they've sought God. You know, men run away from God. It's God has shown it to them. He's been the active one in doing it. And here's how He does it. For ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible nature, namely His eternal power and dignity uh, and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that are made. Now, science is the study of the things that are made. We study matter in time. The Holy Scripture says here through Paul that God has shown himself actively to all men in the study of nature. That is, in the study of plain science. Then he says, since God has done that, Men are without excuse. Just listen to it. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, that is, his eternal power and deity, the eternal power of God and God's deity, his Godhead, think of that, has been shown plainly to all men, especially to the godless and especially to the wicked in the study of science. Okay? Therefore he says, since he shown it them actively in the study of science, the things that are seen, he's shown the invisible things, so that they, the godly, the godless, are without excuse. That is, God expects us to be reasonable creatures. That is creatures able to use the gray matter up here, and when he shows when he shows something to us that we realize the consequences we call that in science inductive thought that is we're able to extrapolate from the visible to the invisible and he says the extrapolation is so simple and so plain that the godless the atheists, and the wicked are without excuse now don't think that we're going to argue with God when we stand before him. We shall be speechless because we're without excuse unless we take this lesson. Now, it's a very, very serious thing to to say. When I read it as a young man, you know, it really upset me because it sounds very bigoted and dogmatic. But in my old age, I've come to the absolute firm conviction that it's logically absolutely the case. Now, I'm going to show you that God's help and your attention uh, tonight, that he, just as the Apostle Paul says. And I'm going to show it you from the scientific point of view. You must do the rest with your pastor here from the theological point of view. Now, let's just have one short word of prayer, because I've got to dive into the pool, and I need a deep pool to dive into to be able to swim tonight. We'll pray together. We ask thee, Lord Jesus, that thou who didst make us in thine own image, so that in ourselves we can see thee, fallen as we are, so that we're without excuse if we don't see thee in thy creation. We ask thee that thou mightest be so good as to open our minds, open our understandings, as thou didst to thy disciples that we may see thee thy truth as thou art that the truth might make us free we ask thee to give us the truth to me and to all of us this night and we praise thee for doing that because the truth sets us free thy word is truth amen now Ladies and gentlemen, this question of the great debate is really the debate on whether there's a creator who created the creation or whether there isn't. And I'm going to go into a bit of the creation tonight to show you that there's a creator and that we can know him right well just by studying science. Now, I know that the Bible gives us the one side the revelation of God in thought and concepts. And that revelation is in the book, in the Bible. But the other revelation, which is equally effective, says the scripture, to bring us to God, not necessarily to Jesus, because that's a special revelation of God, which he's given us in his word. But he's given us a revelation of himself, and if we find himself, we shall find that God father and god the son are one i am one with the father said jesus so it wrote back to that anyway but when we're talking about the scientific side you've got to be very careful especially in america to keep off the theological side otherwise you'll get uh, you know people saying that you don't separate the church from the state and all that sort of thing now if you ask the average american in the in the cities whether he believes in God, I believe over 90% say they do, whether they're Christians or not, About that figure somewhere. If you go to Europe, which has been brainwashed more effectively than you have uh, by the Marxists, no Christians have done, very few Christians have done anything about it, you find that 52% of the people on the street, adults, by a Gallup poll, say they don't believe in God. They're atheists. They don't say they're agnostics, thats they don't know, but they say they do know that there isn't one. And of those 52%, when asked, why don't you believe in God, 85%, 83 or 85%, said that they didn't believe in God because Darwinism, evolution, had made it unnecessary, indeed ridiculous, to believe in God. So 82, 82, 83% of the atheists there say that Darwinism is the reason for it. And that's why I've concentrated so much of my attention on Darwinism. Now, let's just have a look why they talk like that. If you look at biology, you find that we are metabolic machines now don't worry a metabolic machine is an apparatus for getting energy for its own purposes from the environment you get your energy from the potatoes and steaks which you eat and thereby you're a machine now you're more than a machine but your psyche rides on a machine and you're given the executive ability you have to do things with your hands to do things with your feet and to think about things with your head because you are a machine and can extract the energy required to do these things from the environment now i'm going to ask you one thing i want you to think about this throughout the whole evening do you think that anybody would dare to stand up in a lab and say that any machine that is something with a purpose a machine has a purpose, say a car has a purpose to transport you, a sewing machine has a purpose to sew Uh, a milking machine has the purpose of milking cows Okay? do you think that any machine and a machine is per definitionem purposeful do you think it ever arises by chance? I mean that's just a simple, perfect straightforward question the answer is no you have to insert into the machine information from without to make matter aggregate itself to produce the machine. I mean, if you thought that by shaking iron iron ore together in Birmingham with uh, coal or coke, that you get out a Cadillac, you'd have to shake a mighty long time to do it. Um, Because you know, everybody knows, that a Cadillac or a sewing machine is a combination of matter with extrinsic information put into it. The iron and the steel and the plastic and all the rest of it, if I dare say that the Cadillac has plastic in it, but if it does, then all those things are put together with the help of information which does not reside in the machine. That is, all machines prove that you've got to have an engineer, engineer to make them. If anybody will stand up and say to me that a machine requires no engineer, Then I say, dear sir, do you know that matter is not purposeful? Matter doesn't have concepts, like a Cadillac is a concept. Matter does not contain in itself sewing machines. And sewing machines have concepts. Where would they come from? Well, they turn around and say to you, they arose by chance. Well, then I say, what you're saying is this. This is for the students amongst you. What you're saying is this, that... Teleonomy, which is the correct term for purpose, I have to use both, you see, otherwise if there are scientists here, they say he's a crude sort of a person who doesn't know his term any, and I wouldn't like you to say that, you know, because you might not listen to me then, and if I mystify you with one or two terms, uh, but I explain them at the same time to be nice to you, uh, then you might listen to me, okay? Uh, matter itself is the term a-teleonomic. It doesn't have purpose in it, it doesn't think, it doesn't have concepts, but it'll take a concept, it'll store a concept, it'll store a machine, but it can't make them. So you've got to put in the information from outside, which of course the reason why I say that if you find matter, which we know from the three laws of thermodynamics, particularly from the second law, that there's no concept in it, that is, machine concept in it. It has other concepts, like the concept of agency. If you say that, then you said immediately, well, okay, if matter does make machines, you've got to have an engineer to put the information onto the matter to make it a machine. But machines don't form spontaneously. And you are, among other things, a machine. Your psyche is not a machine. I know that, your soul, isn't a machine. But your personality runs on a machine. And when your machine wears out, your psyche takes flight, and if you're redeemed, the Lord, you wait until the resurrection when God will give you a new machine, which is eternal, namely the resurrection body. But that's how things work. Now look, what they say to us is this, that perhaps we have the first uh, picture. What they say to us is this, that the machine arose by chance. I put the formulae up there on the board. I've got nothing suitable to show it, but never mind. Uh, If you take the first formula, you'll find there that matter itself, are you listening? This is a bit theoretical, but we need it. Matter itself is made from energy, don't ask me to define what energy is because i don't know but matter is made from energy plus know-how that is plus concept that is plus mathematical formulae you can make from matter as einstein showed you can make from energy matter we can make the transuranium elements now by that so the first formula i want to show you is that you've got to have concept onto energy to make matter where are you going to get the concept from that's teleonomic. The orbitals around the nucleus are conceptual. They're mathematical formulae. Mathematical formulae, you know, don't arise by chance. You try it. Neither the chemical formulae. They require concept and active thought and energy to do it. Now that's the first formula. The second formula is this. That matter plus energy, say the evolutionist, give you life. Matter plus energy, give you life. That's what the Darwinians say. And that is a defective formula, a formula which we know to be untrue. The real formula for life is matter plus energy plus know-how or concept or thought, if you like, Logos, equals life that is if you take sardine can with all the proteins in it and you put in energy you don't get life out that's the second formula we've done this millions of times and that's what the Darwinians teach that in an open system matter plus energy gives you life we've done it billions of times in all the cans of sardines and other things that have been made and it just don't work it just doesn't come out but we do know this that if you take the same sardines plus energy that is in an open system plus concept then out comes life the whole thing bursts into life and the concept you put in on a spore the concept is written up instructions on how to make an organism, and you put it in, and out will come life. So we know that the creationist formula is right. There's no doubt about this being two models which you can choose. The first, the second one, uh, matter plus energy equals life. We know that's defective. Why are we wasting our time on it? No scientist would ever work on that basis. The American government doesn't work on that basis because if it thought that you can sardines in an open system such as a can is you can put in energy and take it out if they thought that there'd be the slightest chance of you people getting poisoned by a new organism they'd forbid all canning you see they forbid they forbade cyclamate didn't they because you might get one in a million person with cancer as a result of it if they thought that was the case they wouldn't let it go on but at the same time they force, or are trying to force teaching in the schools, that second formula, which we know to be wrong. It isn't true. And they know a thousand million times over that if you take the same system, sardines, plus energy, plus a concept a spore, which is just written codes in concepts, concepts and codes, codes and concepts, know-how, chemical instructions, that if you do it, the whole thing blows up with life. We know these things. Well, why argue about them? That is simply so obvious. But you know nobody teaches it. That's the trouble. Now, I'm going to show you how this works. This is just simply the preliminary canter, so you get used to my accent, you're saying. Okay. Um, just take this one. This is an easy one, but it'll, it'll help you. If you take, uh, perhaps we'd have the the second picture up. If you take a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle. Now, you know what a jigsaw puzzle is, don't you? In case my termini in the ordinary things of household life are wrong. Say you take a jigsaw puzzle of the Matterhorn. You know what the Matterhorn is, don't you? The mountain I climbed when I was young and other people have climbed and uh, so on. It's a lovely mountain. Uh, It is, you see. Uh, (laughs) Done by... uh, done by Picasso himself Um, if you take that as a jigsaw puzzle a thousand pieces all fitted together nicely you put your child on the floor and say now Tommy you put that together he'll sit there and he'll try the pieces out and he'll put them in he'll try the pieces out and put it in gradually, gradually the jigsaw puzzle comes out okay? now it requires uh, careful fitting together to get the concept of the beautiful Matterhorn out. Now, look, if you've got your puzzle now nicely on the floor and you put it in a laboratory shaking machine, you know, these things that shake bottles, they're the, like, this is the way the farmer rides, you see, ever so slowly and they shake and they shake and they shake all night. How long would your puzzle remain? You put the whole puzzle put together on the machine. What happens to it? Does it remain the puzzle, or does it break itself up? Breaks itself up, doesn't it? It falls to pieces. You mustn't get near and jog the boy while he's putting it together, because if you step on it, you know everything will fall to pieces. Now look, I'm going to ask you a question. If you had the thousand pieces of this Matterhorn puzzle, and you put them in the shaking machine, how long would you have to shake until you got the Matterhorn concept out? Now, isn't a joke? This requires a little bit of sharp thought. Would you ever get the complete puzzle out? There are a thousand pieces. Do you think you would? Well, I mean, the chances are so small that you almost might write infinity, might you? I mean, to get it out. Oh, that would be a terrible job, wouldn't it? Because it keep breaking down again. Actually, what happens is you get an Equilibrium. And two or three pieces will fall together and if they're small enough they remain stable even in the shaking and if they get bigger they get more fragile so they break down again and if they break down a bit too far because you're shaking you will build them up again so you get an equilibrium of a small part of the puzzle nothing else now any chemist will tell you that that's an equilibrium reaction now I'm going to do a little experiment and then you'll see what I'm after I'm going to take each piece you see I've labelled them up there piece A, piece B, piece C, piece D, piece E, piece F and I'm going to fit them so together in my little workshop with a loaded spring and a ball, a ball bearing in each piece so that when you slot it in it stays there now the chemist will call that an entropy hole which is used for making substances because you see I'm going to use these puzzle pieces as an illustration of the atoms of which we're made. Okay? Now if you put piece A and put piece B together and then push them into one another and slot them in with a spring and, and a ball uh, they'll slot in and won't come out again. So you've made the reaction irreversible. This is very, very important irreversible it slots in and won't slot out now when you take piece A and piece B that are slotted in right and they'll only slot in when they're right and then they'll stay there and not come out again then you take piece C and you fit it into piece A and B with another slot which is specific and will only stay when it's right and you see you shake them then A, B, C plus D and you put a slot on that specific that it fits right until you get right through the whole thing. Now, if you shook puzzles like that, do you think that you, by shaking, be able to get out the Matterhorn picture? Come on. Get some oxyhemoglobin up there and give me the answer. You would, wouldn't you? It would come out like a Polaroid picture. You know, you take a Polaroid picture and suddenly from that pictureless mass you get a shadow of a picture and then the whole thing comes out and in two or three minutes you've got a marvellous picture arisen from a no picture now if all the pieces were like that of the puzzle you could put it on the shaking machine and gradually before your eyes the Polaroid picture would appear because you see by shaking they'd slot in but they wouldn't slot out okay? okay now think of that that is produced by making your reaction are you listening? go in one direction and not another that is slot in but not slot out now if the reactions go just as easily in as they do out you can shake till the cows come home and you will get no picture you'll only get a small bit of equilibrium lower down now there were plenty of chemists you know plenty of organic chemists lots here in America who believed that matter was made like that lots of Darwinists do today they think that if you take matter which is to be compared with my puzzle pieces jigsaw puzzle pieces of the Matterhorn, they think that if you shake long enough life will come out like the Madon come out? Will it? Or will it not? The answer is no. Because we know that we function, are you listening? We function on the basis of reactions, millions of them, which are reversible. That is, they slot in and they slot out. The very fact that we require at least 2,000 enzymes to make us go, to start the motor. Enzymes only work on reversible reactions. And they establish equilibrium more quickly. They don't shove the equilibrium around. They just let it stay there, but they do it ever so quickly. So that you would get, if you put an enzyme, you could in a system like that. You get ever so quickly a very, very small piece, like an amino, like an amino acid formed, but nothing else because it's reversible. And the very fact that all scientists who know their job know that the reactions of life to go are just like the bits of that puzzle. They go in and they go out. And the fact that we're dependent on enzymes to do it proves the point. If you put one piece of a crystal of sodium cyanide, prussic acid, the sodium salt of it, on your tongue, you will die instantaneously. Why? Because the enzymes are poisoned and there's no forward and backward reaction which stops the total metabolism. They're all reversible and it stops that. and You die on the spot. It's an awful sight to see. But we know that these are the cases. The only way to do it is to slot them in so that they don't slot out. stop the reversibility now the problem is is nature like that is matter like that and we all know that it isn't because matter is particularly the matter of which we're made is reversible now how are you going to do it I just draw a little conclusion here so that you can see how to do it if you see matter slotting in oh thank you if you see matter slotting in not slotting out if you see our puzzles here uh, like the Matterhorn slotting in the bits the puzzle slotting in and not slotting out what's your conclusion Do you think those bits of matter arose by chance do you think that complicated slotting device which is necessary to make by chance just by shaking the Matterhorn picture come out would you ever say that those bits of puzzles started by chance and designed themselves by chance they show every sign of design Okay, now if you do do this experiment in matter say you take methane ammonia and water and pass an electric current through it that is you shake it you will get out the amino acids the alanine of life and that will happen by chance But does it happen by chance? Of course not. It'll happen apparently by chance, but the real reason is that the bits have been designed to fit the amino acids. No, other explanation. They fit perfectly, but they're only a small part of it. If you try to go right up to the total Matterhorn picture, the total picture of life, you can't do it because they're not organized like that. Now that was the means by which one professor of Evolution, while he was busy teaching evolution in his class and teaching that if you shook the elements of life together on a shaky machine, you passed energy through and shook and shook and shook. He taught, he wrote a book called Biochemical Predestination as the explanation of life that out of chance order could come by just shaking. And one student went up to him and said, Sir, have you ever thought of that? and gave him that little book of mine called The Creation of Life, where I've pointed this out. And he read it, and in six weeks, he was a believer in God. And when they gave him the other book, Man's Origin, Man's Destiny, in a few months, he saw that the one who did it was Jesus himself, and he became a Christian. You see, these things if you think they testify to you in such a strong language to anybody who's done his homework in science that he must draw the conclusions that in matter he sees all the evidence for the eternal designer of the bits of matter which make the whole. Now there's a second stage here that in a mixed audience such as we have, I won't do. It will take me half an hour to do, and I don't think it's worth doing now. I've given you the start. If you want to look it up, look it up in the natural sciences, know nothing of evolution. What I've shown is this, that if you get the small bits out in equilibrium, you can only get the large bits out by not having the information stored on the molecules themselves, but have them injected directly from outside, and you can see how he did it. But it takes quite a little bit of study to do these things, and you have to do your chemistry to understand them. I'm going now to talk to you, just a little line under that, I'm going now to talk to you about how you can say this another way, and yet get very clear, very clear a picture of uh, how God did it, or the mechanism by which he did it. The evolutionists say that if you give time long enough, you will get out the Matterhorn picture, which is life, biology. Uh, Darwin started to preach this, you know, and he did so in his book called The Origin of Species in 1859, and he showed, as he thought, that all life was better explicable on the basis that chance did it. And, of course, the English, the British at that time, were very, very pious, and they were up in arms against the preaching of this doctrine that if you shook the machine long enough, you'd get your answer fall out of the bottom. <coughs> they had in 1860, a great debate. This is the great debate, the first one, and all other debates have followed the same, same style. They had that at Oxford, and they asked... Bishop Wilberforce Samuel Wilberforce uh, who was professor of mathematics at Oxford and bishop of Oxford both a very very good theologian and mathematician they asked him if he'd he'd debate Huxley he didn't bait him he was a very very nice man Uh, so he said he would and he produced a huge meeting there in Oxford they arranged that with the British Association for the Advancement of Science. And they said that they give Wilberforce the first word. So he stood up in a huge concourse of people, and he said this. Now, this is what most of you would say. What I used to say, and which you can say today if you know how. You've got to be very careful how you see it. He stood up and he said, All uh, machines... Must have a creator. Uh, he said, for example, that his watch obviously presupposed a watchmaker because the metal of which the watch is made can't do the mathematics to get the wheels the right size and get the spring the right strength. And therefore, if you see gold and steel put together so nicely so they mathematically parallel the rotation of the earth around the sun and around itself that that must be information that's put in from outside and wasn't on the metal although the metal can hold it. And he produced what we used to call Paley's, P-A-L-E-Y Paley's natural um, theology. He said if you see a knife that the knife is sharp, has a handle on it, and that the information to make the sharpness and the handle on it doesn't reside in the metal nor in the wooden handle. Therefore, it must have been put there and a cutler is necessary where a knife is. Well, you can see that argument. And he argued that right through and that argument was valid until 1926 when they pushed it out of the University of Cambridge it was an entrance examination. To get into Cambridge until then, you had to know that. But then they put it away because of evolution. Now, Huxley got up and he said, Well, he was very pleased to hear that because that was a null argument and uh, we could easily demolish that. And he asked uh, Bishop Wilberforce if he would give him one or two axioms to work on. So Bishop Wilberforce said, Yes, of course he would. The first thing he says, would you give me six eternal typewriters that don't go wrong? Typewriters had just come out in those days, you see, so it was a thing to take. Oh, well, the bishop said, I don't see why you want six eternal typewriters, but I'll give you them if you want them to argue with. He said, I do. And then he said, I want six apes that don't die. And then I want enormous amounts of paper, infinite amounts of paper to go in the machines, and gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of ink, so they don't run out of ink. Well, said the bishop, if you want them. He said, you're a professor of mathematics, you can deal with these things, give them me. So I said, okay, he would. Now, said Huxley, you let those eights chained to the typewriter six and six, you let them type, you let them type at random till eternity is almost past well that would be a very long time wouldn't it he said yes that's what we want it's almost eternity i like eternity if I could but he said I can't argue with eternity because we don't have it but we'll have almost eternity so the bishop said okay he was mystified about this this is the valid argument today I'm not talking old hat you know here this was in science your journal quite recently somebody wrote in to I think it was science, it was American, uh, Scientific American, one or two, uh, wrote in to the editor and said, if you cut out the name of your creator in your journal anymore, I won't buy your paper. And the editor wrote back and said, if you're so ignorant, I don't mind if you don't buy our paper, because you hope this case. Because the argument with Huxley and Wilberforce settled once and for all that chance will do what a creator does if you give it time. And here's the argument which is still valid today. Let your typewriters be typed upon by the apes and let them go. Bishop Okay, let them go. Now, before time quite ran out, almost at the end of it, we look at what they've typed. Okay? Said the bishop, and what have they typed? He said, I look through millions and millions of papers, and I find one paper with, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside still waters. Well, the bishop almost went purple when he heard that. He said, You mustn't say things like that. But he said, I must. You're a professor of mathematics. Don't you know the probability formula, bishop? Well, now. Professor of mathematics couldn't very well say he didn't know the probability formula, could you? I mean that wouldn't do. So he said, well, "Of course I know the uh, the probability formula." But he said, do "You believe it? Do you believe it?" Well, the bishop said, oh, oh, uh, uh, "Of course I believe it." Well, he said, "Don't you see that where p, where t, which is time." equals infinity P which is probability equals 1 that is if you give enough time enough for a reaction that's going on typing then you will with certainty get anything and everything out you just let it go long enough and you'll get out the 23rd Psalm but the bishop said The 23rd Psalm was written by David. And here you're saying it wasn't written by David. Oh, no, I'm not, said Huxley. What I'm telling you is that chance can do anything that you can do if you give it time enough. That's the nature of the probability formula. The earth now is very many billions of years old. And the reactions that make you have been going on all this time. If you give time enough, just as your Carl Sagan says, Life will arise. Therefore, they've been listening and they've been looking. They sent labs to Mars and to Venus to have a look and see how life was coming along. That was just it. I had Irwin in my house with his children recently and I asked him about it. And he said, Yes, we were told to look for this rock and that rock, and then it would be examined for chemical evolution which was starting. And they never found one chance in five million that there was any sign of chemical evolution at all. Well, Huxley said, so you do see, Bishop, that uh, if you have time enough, all the works of God, including yourself, will be produced. Because where t equals infinity, P, probability, equals one. Do you understand me, Bishop? Well, poor professor of mathematics. Had to understand him. So it's only a question of time. And you can do the works of God without God. David's works made by David were just as well made by chance if you give time enough. So you see, all you've got to do is have very old earth a very old solar system. And if you touch that question, you know, this is, this is the nitty gritty of it. This is the neuralgic point. If you touch the age of the earth and take away the infinite time, you've torn it. You've just about done it, because it all depends on that. That's where you've got to be careful about, you understand me? That's where it turns. Well, the poor old bishop. He was absolutely upset by that. He said, You don't really seriously mean that a man like me could have written by chance? Yes, he said, I believe my mathematics, and obviously you don't. Finished. So the bishop said, Look, we can't accept that, because we could say that all the things we have in our civilization were made by chance. Exactly that, said Huxley. That's exactly what I'm telling you. There's no need to have the chance. And what's more, said the bishop, you know, said Huxley to the bishop, what's more, I put sense into this universe and you put nonsense with your creationism. Then she said, I don't understand you. Well, he said, it's time he did. Because you see, you've got a world, an earth, a solar system, made as you say, By Jesus Christ, the Creator. And it's full of bad things. It's full of cancer. It's full of war. It's full of violence. It's full of death. Those are bad things, aren't they? Yes indeed, they are, said the Bishop. When he said, if you've got a good God who made a bad world, that good God is a devil. Okay? Okay? When I got converted, you know, In England, many, many years ago, I had a professor of physical chemistry, and he heard me witnessing to a student, and he stood behind me. And he said to me, Now, Wanda Smith, I don't want any of this theological nonsense even mentioned in my lab. He said you know that I'm a Marxist and indeed I knew it and he said I'm absolutely convinced that you're intellectually dishonest and if you're intellectually dishonest then don't watch in my lab. You can do endless harm with your froth of intellectual dishonesty because if God made the world as you say and I'll admit that he might have done Then he made it bad, and he made it good. And if he made it bad, he's a devil. And if he made it good, he's an angel. Now, you can't answer those things. Now, you shut up about these things. I've described it in my little book. In my little book, Why Does God Allow It? That was the conversation with my professor shortly after I got converted. He said, you Christians are intellectually dishonest. You say you believe in a good God, and at the same time he's bad. You're just neutralizing what you said, and you said nothing. It's all froth. And all you do is you wallow in emotions. Instead of a bit of common sense which you were made, and you haven't got any. No more. Now, do you understand that? There are plenty... Plenty who believe like that and unless you can tackle them unless you can show that you can give a reason at any time for the faith that is in you you're disobeying a commandment of Jesus for he said be ready the word of God says be ready at all times to give a reason not just a smile and a song. I like a smile and a song. But you're required, because God made you homo sapiens sapiens, to give a reason. And poor old Wilberforce, you know, when he couldn't give a reason, we sounded reasonably intellectually honest, he never spoke again on that subject. He was killed riding a horse, poor old man, and he never spoke again. He couldn't. He was broken. Because he publicly dishonored the cause of Christ by being able to, unable to answer. Now, where's the answer? Where's the wrong answer? The Holy Scripture says in Romans chapter 1, which I read out to you, that the whole of creation testifies to the deity and Godhead of God. And anybody that doesn't believe that, Anybody that doesn't believe, that is without excuse. And you know, here was I, a young student, right in the middle of things, and couldn't get an answer. And it hurt me for a long, long time. Do you know, I thought 35 years of this sub- over this subject, to get an answer to that specific evolutionary great debate. And there it is, it's held in your scientific journals, to be the basis of evolutionary theory today and they hold us to be intellectually lazy and dishonest that's what they think we are and you know we are that's plain fact it took me 35 years conscious and unconscious thought to get this one out And I did really think about it. It haunted me because, you know, students come and ask me. I've had people say to me, what? Three earned doctorates and half a dozen full professorships. And you believe that drivel in the Bible? You believe that? You're dishonest. I've had people say it to me. You read what they write about me. They say, it's incredible. I've had one evolutionist write to three universities where I've got these degrees and say, is this man really qualified? Did he earn those degrees? Because he believes this drivel, which the Bible teaches, and doesn't know, obviously, what the other arguments are, and he hasn't extricated anybody from his intellectual difficulties that's what they think now we've got to stand up as christians you know a command of god if we love him we should keep his commandments and one of the commandments is be ready at all times to give a reason for the faith that's in us could you do it tonight now i'm going to give you the reason are you ready have i got you conditioned you better laugh a bit because if you don't you'll have no oxygen up there and it'll all go blank and you'll get a spluttery picture like a, a television screen with a car standing outside running with no suppressors on its plugs and you know what the screen is like then, don't you? and I want you to have a clear screen when you've finished it's got to be without any sparks and splutters and shifting of the, of, of the picture so that you can in all love and quietness show that in decency and in honesty, you're persuaded that Jesus was the creator of nature. Now, I'm going to tell you how it's done. Uh, you won't find it anywhere else, because until I wrote it out, in Man's Origin, Man's Destiny, and also in the Natural Sciences, Know Nothing of Evolution. This was the picture. Since then, they've refused to take any paper from me. Because of that reason. For this very reason. Listen. Let's do it properly now. I'm going to invent with you and show you at the same time where the error lies because there's an error and there's a mathematical error which poor old Wilberforce didn't see. And you know, you get surprised by an error especially when you're flummoxed on a question. Uh, It occurred to me this, I've been thinking about it and I travelled from Chicago uh, from Wheaton to Chicago and Chicago to Wheaton every day when I was a professor there. And you know, in Chicago, you get lovely weather. Sometimes it's minus 40 degrees and, uh, and it's windy at the same time and you can't even smile because it hurts you to crack a smile, you know. Your face is frozen up. Well, I was in that state. I got out of the train. This is just to give you the interesting side details and see how the Lord works. Uh, I got out of the train and they always heat them up to about Uh, 90 or 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, in the winter when it's very cold, just to show you don't get cold. And when you get out, you get that windy city blast and the sand and the newspapers in your face as as you get out, you know. So I just got out of this train and was still sweating inwardly and outwardly there were almost, uh, you know, ice, icicles hanging down my beard. And got out. I was outside the Chicago Northwestern station and that wind up that road. And I stood on the curb just to go across the pedestrian's crossing. There was an awful amount of traffic and I got blinded by papers and choked by dust and frozen by the wind. And I waited. And suddenly, just as I put my foot onto the pedestrian crossing, in no language, it is flashed on my mind where the error was. And there was enough in there for a whole book. The mind is made like that. It gives you a flash. You'll have experienced it yourself. You're all genii here in, in um, um, Pastor Chuck Smith's church, aren't you? Otherwise you wouldn't come. Now, it just simply, it just simply the fog cleared away, you know, like it does here. There's something gone. And do you know what it was? It'll take me five minutes to tell it. So quickly do thoughts occur in the mind. They're absolutely marvellous, you know. So quick. Supercomputer. Uh, you've all got it. Only needs using. That's what it wants doing. Do. Listen. If you had a typewriter, such as Huxley demanding, that typewriter, this is vital, when the ape presses his thumb on key A, Key A comes, the A comes from his brain, down his arm, through his finger, onto the key, and the key goes through onto the paper, and he puts A on the paper. And when he lifts his thumb, the A stays on the paper. Now, when he presses B, B comes down from his brain, through his arm, through his thumb, onto the key B, goes through the machine, puts B on the paper. Okay? And right through to Z. He does it like that, doesn't it? Now, you see, that paper, that machine with its paper in it, is a system, are you listening, which types, but doesn't untype. It only types in, but it doesn't type out. Now, that's very remarkable, because nature isn't like that, you know. All the chemical reactions of which we're made—they type in, but they type out. Let me make it clear to you. The new typewriter that I have is a Wilder Smith Special. It's going to make me billions of dollars one day when my ship comes when my ship comes home. And it has on the right hand side of it, it has on the right hand side of it to you what we call a lever, but we call you call it a lever, don't you? So just to Speak by interpretation, you know. Uh, I have to do this in Pastor Chuck Smith's church because he wouldn't allow me to speak without interpretation. So I'm going to give it you. In, <laughs> I'm going to give it you by, by interpretation. <laughs> I thoroughly agree with him. Don't worry about that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I I I conform and willingly. Now this one has a little lever then, which when you push it to the right, are you with me? When you push it to the right, the lever under the keyboard, it types in like an ordinary typewriter. You can type a letter with it. Okay, it types in, but it's irreversible. And if you make a mistake, you have to scratch and pick with a scratch and pick method, you know, to get the thing out or type X tip over it or something like that, uh, calcium sulfate, so that you cover up your mistake. But it doesn't remove the letter, the letter stays there because the thing types in but not out. Now, with my new super typewriter, you push the lever, uh, the lever, pardon me, you push the lever to the left, not to the right, to the left. And then you have this super machine that when the ape types on it, A, A comes down from his beautiful little head, down through his arms, onto the A, goes into the machine. Okay? Everything normal, everything in order everything under control but when he lifts his thumb and lets the key up the a that he's typed untypes itself rises without a trace with no trace from the paper goes back through the machine up through his thumb back into his head now, <laughs> Just let me make this quite clear because if you miss this point, ladies and gentlemen, you will sink to the bottom of the pond and I shan't be able to rescue you. If he takes B and he wants to type B, he takes the B, puts it down through his arm because he's an executive, you see. Uh, He puts it down and types B and the B goes very faithfully onto the paper. There's B there. But as soon as he lifts his thumb or his finger... The B rises without a trace from the paper, goes back through the B key, up through his arm, back into his little brain. So this machine types and untypes in equilibrium. It'll type in and it'll type out. It's like all the chemical reactions of your body. They'll type in and they'll type out. Now, ladies and gentlemen, how long would Huxley have had to allow his apes to type to get out the twenty-third Psalm on a machine like that? How long? How long? I want to yes, a sensible answer. You've got enough oxyhemoglobin up top, and God gave you a perfectly good brain if you've only used it and kept it nice and supple in working order. How long would you have to type? to get out the 23rd psalm by chance. You'd never get it. Because you see, after you've typed one nanosecond, you've untyped in one nanosecond as much as you've typed. If you type a billion years, you've got no further forward. Because every letter you type in, types out. It's completely reversible. You can't do it. There lies the error. You see, the body, the chemistry upon which you ride and which you use to think and act with, the chemistry types in and types out. It is totally and completely reversible, proved by the fact that even to get the simplest form of life, you need enzymes, which catalyze the coming to equilibrium of all the reactions of which you're made. So, all these reactions are reversible. You take the simple ones of Fox and Miller, where he makes his amino acids, and then he says they will combine with one another to form proteins. They won't, unless you make them. And unless you put the lever over to the right-hand side, which you do with a program. If you do that, then you can get on, and you can synthesize, and you could write the 23rd sum. But organic nature is made like my super wilder smith machine. It types in, and it types out, and there's one slight difficulty. It types out rather more quickly than it types in, due to the second law of thermodynamics. So you certainly will never 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 get out by Darwinian processes which Darwin suggested you will never get a synthesis done the only way to get a synthesis to produce nature to produce the 23rd Psalm is to introduce a means by which you can stop the typing out and force and encourage the typing in Now that means, I can't go into it now because I haven't time. That means that you've got to have programming to say, Hi, you can go in, but you can't come out again. Now programming means that you put in a surprise effect. The surprise effect is this, that normally you'd expect it to go in, if you know your chemistry, the typing, and you'd expect it to come equally quickly out. You'd type in and type out. That's what we normally expect. And in order to stop that, that's the law of nature. In order to stop that, you've got to program the machine with your genes and say, hey, in, but there you stay, and you don't come out again. And that's not a law of nature. That's a law of programming. Programming is the function of the genetic code. And the genetic code does not, being full of information or surprise effects, ever arise alone. Now, you see what Huxley had done and how he'd swindled. It's what we call sleight of hand. Nobody guessed that the typewriters that he'd used were really, are you listening? They were really creation machines they allowed you to go in and they didn't allow you to go out because they're machines. But nature, without typewriters, organic nature, organic chemical reactions, are not like that. They allow you to go in slightly less easily than they allow you to go out. And therefore you can't synthesize with them. The only way to do it is to get a program put in either from the head of a biochemist or from the program of the uh, genetic code, which will then do it. So, if you had a machine, a typewriter, which is really like nature, which Huxley was using, you'd have to make it like my typewriter, with the lever in the left position. And then you'd see immediately where his error was. His probability formula will only work where it's irreversible. It won't work where it's reversible. Now, prigogine two years ago, got the Nobel Prize for seeing that. I've written it in my Man's Origin, Man's Destiny about 12 years before. But you see, the important thing is... No, 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 I, I, I don't mean that at all. Uh, I don't mean that at all. It's so simple uh, when you make it clear, such as I've tried to do tonight, that any school child can see it. But if you wrap it up in very complicated formulae, they won't, and they think it's a new invention. It's as old as the hills. That where you remove remove the equilibrium, and you put your system far away from equilibrium, as Prigogine says, then your reaction will go forward. That's what he said. And that's the case but he uses it to say that there's no necessity for a creation if you just take it away from equilibrium, we don't need a creator. It will happen then, but he's forgotten to say that only a program will do that, and programs don't arise by chance. Now, let's uh, just look at one more thing. The typewriter, as I've said, is my typewriter, the ordinary typewriter, not my typewriter, the ordinary typewriter is a creation machine it makes a decision every time you push a key and the decision is this it's automatic and inbuilt the decision is this that you, A, will go in but A, you won't come out in nature you'd expect A to go in and then A to come out because organic reactions are that way So what you've done is you've inserted in Huxley's typewriter the principle of creation. Every time that you press a button in Huxley's typewriter you get one bit of information which is not a natural law but which is a surprise effect injected into the system. Now if a typewriter is a machine which injects every time you touch it one decision you are injecting informational surprise effects and your machine is in effect really and truly a creation machine so Huxley in reality had shown that in order to get the 23rd Psalm out because the machine is a weak creation machine you need a long time but one thing he didn't know he did not show that you can make the twenty-third psalm without creative ability that is putting in the creation effect of a decision you go in but you don't come out okay so he really proved creation very neatly but he he never let on i don't think he ever saw it because that has come out with the study of information theory now i've got the last bit of message for you ladies and gentlemen and you can then relax if you can produce 23rd Psalm. Listen carefully. By the summation of creative reactions which are not reversible, a decision to go in, a decision to go out, you have to wait an awful long time until you've summated enough creative ability to make 23rd Psalm. You have to have an awful lot of years because it's so weak. Now if you look at our genes, such as we did last night, And you see what they're like. They contain, you know, the ones we know, contain almost infinite amounts of bits and bytes of decision or information. And we can do it so quickly now because we know how to do it. But when you look at our genetic code and you count the bits of information the stopping of a reaction in one direction and the allowing it it in another direction. It's so infinite that even the best of our scientists and geneticists and information engineers are asking themselves, however, however, did we concentrate into one egg, one zygote, so much concentrated intelligence or bits of information. Do you know this? That we've been working now for 30 years on Escherichia Koni And after this 20, 30 years of work we're up to 90% of the information which is known to synthesize an Escherichia Now, if you read the books, the papers, which are working out point for point, bit of information, bit of information, bite of information, bite of information, and sum it up. You know, it's almost more than the stars of heaven. Nature, organic chemistry can't do it. What do I conclude? It's weak to say a superintelligence to supply the creative power required to do it. And we've been working all these years on the simplest bacterium in the stomach, Escherichia coli, And it testifies with super decibels for anybody that can read it. The super intelligence which was able to make chemistry like that. We can count the bits and the units of intelligence today. And as soon as we know 100%, And that's ten years, five, ten years off. be able to make it. Just as God made it. By funneling in the surprise effects to it. Now, there's no comparing the bits of information in, say, a human brain. The human brain has more intelligence concentrated in it. More bits of information. Than any other structure in the whole known universe. It's the most complicated piece of reduced entropy, that is, bit of intelligence, manifest intelligence, in this whole solar system. There's no doubt about that. And then we've counted or tried to count the neuron synapses in the brain, but you know. It's uncalculable, it's incalculable, so complicated. Every bit, every cell is connected to every other cell X times to get the intelligence and the consciousness we need. You can see it, Calculate it. we know it. Then think of this super thought. All that intelligence and structure the most structured organism in the whole universe is up here all that is written down in algorithmic form an algorithm you know what that is it's a simulated form all that information is written on one sperm one egg the size of a pinhead it's billions of bits of information on the size of pinhead. Now you know that if you can write things small, and miniaturise, that's sign of super intelligence. You're better than the Russians. They need gate big te- gate gate big computers to do it. You have microcomputers on microchips. It's absolutely incredible the amount of intelligence on one sperm and one egg. just think of it now the last thing I'm going to say to you is this ladies and gentlemen don't think that the scientists don't know this they do but they will not for ideological reasons apply it because there's one thing they say right from the start we're not going back to that unthinkable idea of a creator as having done it that is unthinkable and if you bring that we won't accept it. Well I've said in my books what about if you have to? (laughs) Now Jesus said this Uh, Paul said it actually he said this that in Jesus Christ the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily And the fullness of the intelligence and omniscience of the Godhead is in Christ. Now if Jesus is like that, it also says all things were made by him and for him. And truly, ladies and gentlemen, we are wonderfully and marvelously made. One thing God does expect of us is that having been provided with such an instrument, as he has done, that we exercise it. You exercise your body. You do jogging and all those sorts of things. Excellent that you should, because he who destroys the temple of the body destroys the temple of the Holy Ghost. But you see, what we've forgotten to do is to convince the world that we're without excuse if we deny our creator. Now, if your government were to apply one-tenth of the budget it spends on fighting communism and dictatorship, were to spend one-tenth on the scientific literature which makes Marxism and materialism in the present state of the art of science untenable, you'd have them down in no time because they stand up and say that their atheism is scientific and it isn't, it's unscientific these books which I've written, they're circulating in Russian and in German right throughout communistic countries and those people you know, the dear Christians there they're using this, grabbing this information to be able to give a reason for their faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, I'm finishing with this story. I wrote that book called The Natural Sciences Know Nothing of Evolution. And two years after I'd written it, I had a letter from the Pope, Pope Rome, and from his Radio Vatican people there. And they said, you know, these are, some of them, you know, very, very serious true and faithful believers, some of them. I've experienced that and I'm glad to say it here. They wrote to me and they said, look, we're broadcasting every month to Czechoslovakia and other countries behind the Iron Curtain to provide the believers there, Catholic and others, with the ammunition they need to fight this awful tyranny of materialism. We've been broadcasting that now for every year. Uh, we don't have very much money for this sort of thing. Would you give us a free license to translate that book into the languages behind the Iron Curtain, particularly Czech? They've started with Czech. And anybody who cares to write, we put it in an unmarked envelope, and we've, they've treated it on thin paper so that it can go in as a, as a, as a, as a letter And we're going to send it to anybody you like. You know, those people are living in the uttermost tyranny, but inwardly they're free in their mind because they know this tyranny is a lie. And they live by that. That's how they're sustained. Now, I had a letter in his own handwriting, from Pope, quite recently, just before we left, thanking me in Latin this weapon against the tyranny in poland and in the other countries because you know the truth makes you free and this is the truth i don't only believe in the biblical truth i believe in that my whole heart every word of it but i also believe in the truth of god's creation and i've tried to give you just a little excerpt of the truth of god's creation and even this truth Will make you free and make you praise the Lord. We we'll pray together. We ask Thee, Lord Jesus, that Thou hast made us, might enlighten us to spread Thy truth, to make Thy children free. We thank Thee that Thou hast made us as sons and daughters of Thyself, the same species as Thyself, for we are the offspring of God. We ask Thee that Thou might might just reverse the effects of the fall, and uncloud our minds that we may see nature and thy word as they both are and in seeing them both we might see thee and be changed stepwise and stagewise into thy very image. Do this, Lord Jesus, by revealing the truth, even the scientific truth, to us, to make
0: us free. Amen. 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 Great lecture. Yeah, I'm not interested in attacking the Bible, but I'll go for the jugular any day of the week when it comes to evolutionary theory. It really isn't science. It's really bad, bad stuff. No point in dabbling with it because my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he was no evolutionist. He was the one there, speaking the world into existence. Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate. Amen. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there,